If you would take your Bible, I want you to look back in the book of Ephesians, and I really just, we come to a, a wonderful section in the Word of God, and if you're visiting this morning, this is what we do. We go line by line, precept by precept, uh, through the Word of God, because the Word of God is the power. I was holding in my hands on Friday um, a very rare Bible, a little Bible that was actually printed in 15, I want to say 40. It's only one of four Bibles out of this collection, and it's rare indeed, and, and uh, not glorifying the Bible that that's old, but the words that are in it to know that this is a sure and steady foundation is the Word of God. Some of these Bibles have blood on it because they would sometimes before they would put the martyrs at the stake, they would cut them and bleed their blood on these Bibles. And so you're holding in your hands the very Word of God. And so as we read it, let me just read a couple of the verses that we'll look at today that are very, very vital in fact, if you look down in verse, well, let me just read in 429. Paul says there, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As a young man, I used to read verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God and wonder, what does that mean? And how did it get right there at verse 30? And, uh, you know, some commentators who don't believe in the inerrancy and inspiration and the perspicuity of Scripture, that all of it is inspired don't really have an answer, but you're holding in your hands the Word of God, amen, and the Word of God doesn't make any mistake, and I'll show you how verse 30 fits in this framework from 25 down through 32. Let us bow in a word of prayer, and we'll ask his blessing. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you are the King. Father, thank you that our anchor is sure and steady. Thank you that in the midst of even being believers, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ by his death on the cross has already redeemed us and our anchor is steady. We're grateful for that, but Lord, we also realize that flowing out of that great calling of regeneration, you have asked us to live distinctly by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Father, accomplish your will and work in every life, in every single person, in every home, in every married couple, that our church might glorify you because we're walking in obedience. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. One statistician said, and I'm not a big guy on stats, but he did say this, that the average person, that would be all of us, spends at least 13 years of his or her life talking it's kind of scary, isn't it? It's that on a normal day, somewhere between 18 and 25,000 words are likely used equivalent to a book of 54 pages every day. They would estimate that over the average of a single year, 
your words would fill up 66 books, each containing 800 pages. It's a shock, isn't it? It would be like you coming into my library over here and you say, hey, what's that 66 volume set there? Oh, those are the words that I spoke in 2021. And I've categorized, I mean, and I'm sure for a preacher it's more than that, ouch, okay? They would say that we spend one-fifth of our life talking. Now, it's not in my notes, but I remember that stat from before, you know, that the average person spends 18 to 25,000 words a day. I think it was one of the astronauts from the Apollo 11. It might have been Mike Glenn who said the problem with that stat is that by the time I get home, I've already spent my 25,000 words and my wife hasn't started yet. So, now, that's a bad one. That's what he said. I didn't say that. (laughs) Words are speech. I mean, mankind, you would understand, has accomplished some incredible feats. We've put men and women into rockets and shot them off into space. We've had the moon under our feet for certain men and women, left footprints on the ocean floor. We have sent our voices, uh, if you will, into the sky, bouncing off those satellites around the world and a number of other accomplishments could be stated as, as incredible as they might be, but James, the half-brother of our Lord, said that no one is able to tame the, what? The tongue. He said it's a deadly poison. He said that it's a restless evil. And that's where we come to this passage today. You know, it's fascinating that when you read the condemnation of all men in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans, that Paul cites this in Romans 3.13 of our depravity. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And they have feet that are swift to shed blood. I think it's interesting that he lists five organs that are, you know, of the body that are vehicles of sin, namely the throat, the tongue, lips, mouth, and feet. I think it's interesting out of the five organs that four of them have to do with what we say to each other. Now, now this matters for us. I don't know if you're visiting. It's not like this is a do-good sermon. We've been saved and redeemed. We've been placed into the heavenlies. And what Paul's going to do as he charts from one through three is put you into the heavenlies, but he's going to bring you right back down to earth with your and my Christianity as it's lived out. And I would just say that your speech, my speech, matters. Now, as we're in chapter four, we know that this is the radical new life or the new nature of someone who's in Christ. Remember he said in 4.1, to walk worthy. And then as we move down in chapter 4, he told us to put off the old man and then to put on the new man. To take off what we once were and then to put on what we now are and to renew our minds daily according to the scripture. That's the essence of it. And then we started that path in 25 through 32, and there's five practical illustrations 
on how to put off the old man and what to put on in the new man. And they need to mark your life. And they need to mark my life. And they need to mark our life as a church family. The first illustration was tell the truth in verse 25. He says, having put off or taken off or put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. And we talked on that. Tell the truth. Second illustration was don't be angry. He actually said be angry, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. So those are the the opening illustrations. Tell the truth and don't be angry. And then last time together, we looked at the third illustration. I just call it steal no more. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Let him work, doing honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share. And then this morning, just quickly, we come to the fourth illustration. It's called words that build up, and I've already read the text. Now, as our custom's been the last few weeks, each of these illustrations, it's not hard to understand, has a negative prohibition, or in this sense, what you must put off. It's followed as this negative prohibition by a positive command, and the positive command is what you're to put on, and then we said that there's a purpose attached to it. In other words, there's a reason, there's a motivation attached to it. Here's your new nature in Christ, and so act like it. Now, as we drill down in the text in 29 and 30, Paul's going to give us three characteristics that direct our speech from corrupt words to words that build up. And, of course, I want you to take inventory today of the words that you use. Okay, three characteristics. Here first, not hard to grasp, the negative prohibition, what you, as a believer, must put off. What you must put off. Look down at the text in verse 29, because this is God's holy word. These are not my words. Here's the negative prohibition. Let no corrupting talk come from your mouth, if you will. Here's what you got to put off. You've got to put off, verse 29 there, you can underline that. It's corrupting talk. So let nothing come out of your mouth that is corrupt. Uh, It's interesting, that word there for corrupt, I can tell you what it means. And it's not just the word for talk, it's the word sarpos and These words are rotten, is the best way to say it. They are, I'm just throwing words in here out of the lexicon, putrid. Words that come out of our mouth that are spoiled. Here, translated, corrupt speech. In fact, I could say that the word corrupt is literally filthy words. Now, if you need a word picture, what do you mean by that? It was used in the New Testament, is this word corrupt, to speak of rotten fruit. You know what that is, a piece of rotten fruit. It was used of a rotten tree that was rotten and corrupt from the inside. It was used of rotten fish. I like to say rancid fish. In fact, I, maybe I've shared with you before, it's kind of funny, I'm in the midst of agricultural business as the Lord brought my wife and I here 10 years ago 
But before uh, and while I was in seminary, I worked at a grocery store. And I worked specifically in the produce department of all things. So I put up all the fruit, all the lettuce, all the tomatoes, all the, you know. And of course, you had to work efficient. So sometimes I would have my little stand right next to me. And, uh, and on my stand, well, let's say there was a, a boxes of tomatoes. You couldn't just take one of them at a time and put them on. Everything was efficiency. So I would grab like this with my basketball hand and palm three of them, three tomatoes, and bring them over. Palm three, bring them over. Palm three, and bring them over. And every once in a while, you understand it's somewhat gross, it was put my finger all the way through a rotten tomato. Now, it's amazing because you're working with these beautiful tomatoes and then somehow in this box, there's this gray dust over it and you just put your hand through it and it was gross. This is what Paul is talking about. He's saying, here's a negative prohibition. You've got to not let corrupt, foul, rotten, rancid words come out of your mouth. In fact, I I just want to be clear, look down into the text. It it says here, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And, And the ideal of the language there is don't let it be named among you. And, and really, because this is the Word of God, he's not talking just to the Ephesians. Of course, he wrote it to the church at Ephesus. He's actually saying by the Spirit of God to you this morning, in the present tense, your corrupting words must be stopped. You can't, is the thought, be duplicitous between who you are here and who you are in the home. You can't be duplicitous between singing praise to God in James chapter 3 and then somehow you have a foul mouth Monday through Friday at your business. It's in the present imperative and it implies that this was actually in process when Paul wrote. Frightening. He told them to stop. In other words, it evidently was going on by the language and it may be going on right now. In other words, it's not okay. It's not okay. This could be, you say, well, then what does rotten words mean? I I wrote some things down. It could be abusive language. That's in the meaning of the word. Could speak of profanity. It could speak of dirty jokes. And I think here you could even interpret and say, let no evil word come out of your mouth. This could be obscenities. This could be off-colored jokes. This could be filthy talk. This is talk that is disgusting. This could be talk on sexual innuendo. This could just be vulgar words. This could be gossip. This could be slander. These could be words that destroy others. This could even be in the life of your home, sarcasm. This could include coarse humor. All of that is involved in this negative prohibition. In fact, glance down with your eyes at chapter 5 in verse 4, where Paul says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, beloved, you know 
that we live in a culture of profane language. And frankly, I'm concerned that we just get desensitized to it. I don't even know if it's so much what we say, but, you know, some of the movies you can find have over a hundred foul words in it. And I think, I just want to just say, listen, Paul's saying, don't let it proceed out of your mouth. Don't, don't let this come out of your mouth. And now, you know, and I know, the discerning reader is, look at the text again in 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your, and he mentions this, mouths. But the discerning reader knows, and I understand what Paul is saying there, the discerning reader understands that words that come out of our mouth come from where? Where do they come from? Our heart. Our heart is where they come from. It's not as though words just slip. They come out of our heart. In fact, let me show you. I'll just take you there. Look over to Matthew for a moment. The book of Matthew 15. Let me just show you this. And you've seen this text before. And it's, it's not just that words that slip or whatever. They, they come actually from a heart. You remember in Matthew 15, um, Jesus was, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us in 15, 15. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, you understand this, passes into the stomach and it is expelled? We understand that. But, he said in 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the what? The heart, and this defiles the person, okay? And so the words that we say, they do come out of our mouths, but they come out of the heart. Beloved, it would be like me saying, don't be angry. Anger is a symptom, but anger comes out of the heart, so this is where repentance comes in. This is why I read Isaiah 6. The coal, the seraphim flew and touched his lips. And you would think he was the most righteous man, but he needed to be cleansed by God. In fact, look over at Matthew 12, just a chapter back if your Bible is open there. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, he says, either make the tree good, and I'm in 1233 make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree obviously is known by its fruit you brood vipers how can you speak good when you are evil he was talking to the religious leaders for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth what speaks and so we understand when he gives this negative prohibition to not let these words come out that the real culprit is the heart. Do you remember when Jesus said in Mark 7, 21, from within, from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, and then he mentioned this one, slander. So where does slander come from? Well, I, you slandered someone. Well, Jesus is going to say when you slander someone, it comes out of your heart. He said all these evil things come from within and defile the person. 
In fact, sometimes I like to say that, you know, when we speak, it's as though we're taking our heart out. Maybe that's not a good illustration, and we're just laying it on the table. And, he's, and I say the illustration, it's a red pulsating organ, if you will, but those very words that come out of our mouth are coming from the innermost part of our being, if you will. Listen, I love you, and I'm going to tell you this. A foul mouth comes from a foul heart. And once we realize that, maybe then we'll begin to take every word and thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, just track back in the illustrations. If you lie, the new believer and the new man needs to tell the truth. If you have a problem with anger, you need to confess that to the Lord and you need to make sure that the sun doesn't go down on your anger. If, you need to, if you're stealing in your past life, as a believer, you need to steal no more. And now you need to share, and in this illustration here, what used to come out of your mouth now needs to be redeemed, Okay? In fact, look over in the book of Colossians. Let me show you this. Look in the book of Colossians, just right after Ephesians, Philippians. It's very simple. Paul wrote Colossians chapter 3, and he's in that section in Colossians 3. Are you turning in your Bible? I want to hear those pages going, okay? Sometimes I don't want to put it up on the screen, and sadly it is on the screen, so okay. Um, but Colossians chapter 3, 8, is this not the same principle in Ephesians 4? But now, you, I love that second person, must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What a statement. You got to put it all away. You're not allowed to speak that way. You used to speak that way. I used to speak a certain way. But when you get redeemed, he wants to take your hands that used to steal now do it so you can share. He wants to take those words that were once corrupt, you put them off, and here you're going you're gonna to speak words out of your mouth that are pure. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, people will give an account, somewhat frightening, of every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In fact, the great church father, Augustine, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should sell them out in the back or give them away. He hung this on his dining room wall in his home. Quote, he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Boy, that's a good word. So he tells us something to take off. We're not done. Look at the text. He tells us there's something to put on. Look what he tells us to put on as you turn back to the book of Ephesians. He said, but only. He makes a transition. Here's the positive, if you will, the, the, the command here. He said, but only such as a word or only such as is good for, watch this, building up. And the ESV, ESV, as fits the occasion. So here's the prohibition to put off. Now to the positive command. What is it that you're to put on? Two characteristics of godly speech, if you will. Okay. First, I'm just going to say it this way. Words that build up. 
okay? Words that build or build up. Look, look again at verse 29. Only, but only as such as is good for building up. And obviously he's making a contrast there with corrupt words that tear down and words that ought to come out of a redeemed mouth that build up. That word for build up just described, and we've seen it in Ephesians before, of, of a building, of construction, of that type of work. And figuratively here, it meant our words should spiritually edify and encourage and be beneficial and be good. In other words, in your home life with husband and wife, the words ought to not be corrupt, slanderous, harsh. They ought to be words that, that edify. You say, well, Scott, this is um, flattery. <laughs> no, it's not. Look in chapter 4, in verse 15, he said there, rather speak or speaking the truth in what? Love. At times you have to speak the truth, but it's done in such a way that here in that aroma, if you will, of love. In fact, look at 4, 425, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And so this is not flattery. This is speaking the truth in love and speaking the truth is the thought. How you doing? Do your words build up, I'm asking you, or are they corrupt? And even being a mom, thinking of Patty with seven kids at one time, that's hard work and labor, isn't it? And our words just need to be, what? Edifying. They need to build. They don't need to destroy. How you doing? But there's a second characteristic of this positive command, and it's words that fit the occasion. Look at the text again. It says here, for building up, comma, as fits the occasion. I think in the NASB, it was words that are according to the need of the moment. Okay, very well. Here, our words ought to not just be edifying, but he gives a second correct characteristic. They need to fit the occasion. And the, the thought here, they need to meet the needs of others. They need to build them up. You would agree with me, just thinking of my mom here, that some words, though true, though true, are often spoke at the wrong time, right? My mom used to say to me, Scott, you know, I could just hear her voice. It, you know it. You could finish the sentence. If you don't have anything good to say, don't what? say it. And I could hear it. I could hear my godly mom's, but mom, this is really good. You need to know that, you know. And she would say, Scott, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say it. And so here we need to be very, very careful that our words fit the occasion. You say, do we blow it there? Probably all the time. I know I do. I think it's good measure why when we wake up in the morning, we're putting the Word of God into our mind. I think in the morning, we're praying that our words would be active, that our words would, be, would build others up, that our words would fit the occasion. I like Proverbs 25, 11. Write this one down, and I think it mirrors this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold, 
in a setting of silver. I like that. And Proverbs, again, 15.23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. Oh, I pray that we would have tongues and words and that flow from us that are like that. A lady once tried to justify the quickness of her own tongue by saying this, quote, it passes, it is done quickly, end of quote, to which the famous evangelist Billy Sunday replied, so does a shotgun blast. Such is the result of a quick tongue that leaves devastation in its wake. There, there were times when I remember playing basketball at a junior college and at Pierce Junior College, and I just couldn't believe sometimes the words that came out of these men's mouths. I thought, I didn't even know that was a word. I, you, you know, I just, and they're just talking. But listen, I, I say that. They're unbelievers. We're believers, beloved. Can you imagine what our church would be like if we put this into practice? Can you imagine the harmony and the peace and the unity? And I think we have that harmony, that peace, and that unity. And I would say to you, excel still more. But if the shoe fits here, you need to wear it. And so here's the negative prohibition, the positive command, and then there's a final thought here. There's a purpose attached to it. Look at verse 29. How should I speak? Here's the purpose, that it may, into 29, give grace to those who hear. What do you, what do you mean give grace, Scott? Well, I mean, it's, it's a word. This is the word of God. It just means favor. It's what the word grace means. It just means beneficial. And, and I think what Paul's saying here is you've been saved by grace. You are kept in grace. Now, as the new man, speak words that are gracious, that are beneficial, that bring favor and encouragement, if you will. That's the thought here. Let it not be named among us as a church that we would use corrupt words, but that we would be a blessing to those whom we come into contact with. I think, beloved, this is what Paul is saying, is that the, wor the, the worthy walk is not only a transformed life, it's a transformed mouth. And so be careful of how you speak to one another, or how you speak about the elders or the leadership here, okay? You need to use words that build up, that enable, that encourage this body. And then this, look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for on the day of redemption. Now, I don't have a, a point here. Uh, it's just there in the text, so you just go with the flow with me, okay? Now, it, you, you say there, what, what is this? What's it attached to? And there's a bunch of questions and spilled ink on pages as to what this is, but I don't think it's hard. Usually, look at verse 30, when Paul gives the word and, it's a conjunction, it's just the Greek term chi, he's linking that with what came before. 
okay? So in the middle of this exhortation, there's a statement about the Holy Spirit, and I believe it's connected broadly, I think so, on 25 through 29, but I think it's linked specifically to verse 29 by the linking there of that word and. Now, you say, what does this mean in verse 30? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to give you some uh, lexical work here. You say lexical work. These are lexicons that give definitions to words, and it matters because this is the Word of God, and so you're wondering, what does it mean to grieve? I am, but to grieve means to cause severe mental or emotional distress. It's fair to even say that the word grieve means to vex. It's the idea here to make sad. I could even say to offend, to irritate, to insult. And it's used in numerous places of the Bible. I'll just share a few with you. Joseph in Genesis 45, 5, told his brothers not to be grieved as to what they did to him. They, they were fearful of what they did to Joseph, and he had to tell them in Genesis 45, don't be grieved by that. David, in 2 Samuel 19, 2, grieved, it used that word, over the death of his son Absalom. He grieved. Remember, they, he wanted him to come back, and they killed him, and so he grieved. Herod grieved because of the promise that he had made to Salome. That whatever you ask me up to half my kingdom, I'll give. So she goes to her mother. She says, bring me the head of John the Baptist. Herod was grieved over that. Now, you say, what's the connection here? Listen, you got to get this. Corrupting, foul, disgusting, rotten, and rancid words grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't know another way to say it. If the Holy Spirit can be grieved, it follows, beloved, that the Holy Spirit is a what? A person with personality. And we know that. I did that in John 14 through 17, 13 through 17 on the high priestly prayer that he has the Holy Spirit intellect 1 Corinthians 2.13. The Holy Spirit has feelings. <laughs> Romans 8.27. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. John 14.26. You understand he's the third person of the Trinity. Which means that the Holy Spirit can be tested in Acts 5.9. The Holy Spirit in Acts 5.3 can be lied to. The Holy Spirit in Acts 7.51 can be resisted. In other words, you're testing a person, lying to a person. Some people resist the Holy Spirit. We know from a Hebrews, a Hebrews 10, 29, that the Spirit can be insulted, that according to Matthew chapter 12, 31, that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. You say, well, Scott, what's the point? Well, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, okay? John 14, 17, for he dwells with you, 
Remember when Jesus said, but one day he's going to be in you, okay? And there's so many more, but 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is what? In you. And so the point that Paul is profoundly making in this present active imperative, if it's true, stop grieving the Holy Spirit of God, implying that as he wrote this, some were, and maybe some even now are doing that. (laughs) One woman has labeled the undisciplined talker as harm, H-A-R-M, an acrostic, and it stands for a hit-and-run mouth. Listen, every time we do that, we're grieving the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You say, did this happen in the Old Testament? Yeah, let me show you. Look over to the book of Isaiah, just for a second. And this one I didn't put up on the screen, so we could hear pages turning, okay? (laughs) Isaiah 63, it's really kind of a, a wonderful account there. You say, why am I turning you to 63 of Isaiah? I think Paul may have had this in his mind. Sometimes it's hard to know if he had that in his mind, if it's not in some kind of bracket or so forth. But I think Paul, as a rabbi, did have Isaiah 63 in his mind. Look, I will recount, and I'm in 63.7, the steadfast love of the Lord. I'm getting the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness, we just sang about that, to the house of Israel, for he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely and he became their savior and in all their affliction he was afflicted and in this and the angel of his presence saved them it's a description of the angel of the lord that even through their wanderings and through exodus It was the angel of his presence, the angel of the Lord, uh, saving them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them. He lifted them up. He carried them all the days of old. But this, they rebelled and grieved his, what? Holy Spirit. There it is. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Say, what's the point? Well, likewise, we the redeemed who have been saved by his blood, who have been saved by his grace, who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God may be guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit by our speech. Have you ever thought that? That when we gossip, when we slander, when we speak ill to one another, you're not just speaking about a person. You're dragging the presence of the Holy Spirit into your life and into, that's in your heart. And, I mean, it's shocking. You're grieving him. You're grieving him. Making him sad, if the word is that, right? Insulting him, if you will irritating him, grieving him. Maybe the other word Paul used in 
1 Thessalonians 5, was your quenching him. So let me say the Holy Spirit is grieved when God's people continue in any sins that divide the unity and destroy the purity of this body. And I don't want to be guilty of that as a leader and and. I don't, I don't really have anybody of you in my mind to praise God. It's not like I'm preaching this to you. I'm preaching it to myself. But has you, have you ever thought about that? That when we use words that are corrupt and when we use words that don't build up and edify or don't fit the occasion, we're tearing down what the Spirit of God is seeking to produce in this body. Somebody wrote this, I am more deadly than the screaming shell from a howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes. I break hearts. I wreck lives. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for the truth. No respect for justice. No mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea. My name is gossip. Listen, we've got a doctrinal statement here that we love as an elder board. But the greatest threat to our church will be disunity from the inside. And let me just say this, if your home isn't unified in this way, we won't be unified in the church and we both build on each other. High school students, are you hearing this? Not that I have a problem with you. But junior high students, sometimes words are so sarcastic. Men, sometimes your words to your wife or women, to your children or your husband, or parents, how do you respond when your children are rude to each other. Patty, I forgot to run this by you, but can I tell this story? She's like, she's like, I don't know. I have to tell it now that I said that. We have a set of twins, a set of twins, and um, they love each other. In fact, uh, as far as I can tell, they only argued one time. Now, this is not normal, but they're in Christ. But, and it was when they were young. And I asked them one time, why, why are you guys such good friends? It's a good question from a dad. They said, well, dad, they might have talked with a list back then, you know. They said one time when we got in an argument with each other, Patty talked to them. And Patty, through tears in her eyes, told them to get along with one another because they shared the same womb together. And from that time she told them that, as best we can see, they've never argued. They're identical twins that came out. Of course, Lauren is the baby because she came out two minutes later. But they're, they, they, and, and I just, I was thinking about that, but I thought, how much greater that the Holy Spirit took up residence in you and he's promoting holiness in your life and in my life and promoting holiness and t- telling the, the body to be preserved in unity. Don't forget, beloved, that you, I, drag into our speech the person of the Holy Spirit. 
Lehman Strauss said this. He said, do you honestly feel that you have been face to face with God in singing praises, in reading his word, and in prayer. If you go home and you show an irritated, undisciplined, angry temper by scolding, condemning, and finding fault with your tongue. Ouch. I mean, the truth is, beloved, we have an organized crime syndicate in our mouths. All sin, listen, you know this, All sin is painful to God, but corrupt words spoken to others irritates and grieves the Holy Spirit. And then look at the final statement there. Look, down in the Bible in 430, by whom you were sealed. We looked at the sealing of the Spirit in Ephesians 1. 13, the sealing is not some bizarre experience subsequent to salvation. Sealing is a once and for all act at conversion that when you come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, God the Father imparts God the Spirit into our very life and seals us for the day of redemption. In other words, you say, what does that mean? It just means that God's seal is the authenticity in your life, the ownership in your life, the protection regarding your salvation, regarding your inheritance, that you belong to God. You've been sealed and you're sealed. You can't lose that salvation. You say sealed until when? Look at verse 30. For the day of redemption. Now, obviously, if you're in Christ, you've been redeemed, Ephesians 1, 7. You've been granted the forgiveness of your sins, but here the day of redemption looks to the future. So you were sealed at the beginning of your salvation. You've been sealed all the way up to the day of your redemption. That's the day. We've spoken of that in 1.14, when we are set free from the very presence of sin, when our bodies are redeemed at the second coming, okay? So here is the believer's final release from the presence of sin. The Holy Spirit is anchoring, if you will, our present salvation, that we belong to him. Then he guarantees that sealing all the way to our future redemption where we gain that new body. So he buys us, beloved, out of bondage. He does that at the price of his blood. He gives you an inheritance according to Ephesians 1.14. He offers a down payment of the Holy Spirit for our future redemption. You say, okay, Scott, put it together. Listen, when we lie, when we get angry, when we steal, and in this case, when we use corrupt words, we're grieving the Holy Spirit who was sent to this earth and sent to live within us to be our helper who sealed us, who became the very guarantee of our salvation. So why then? This is what Paul is saying. Why engage in corrupt words that grieve the Holy Spirit who lives in our heart and who guarantees our future redemption? I I just think Paul's so kind. He doesn't say, ah, your mouth, you're done. Ah, you know, your mouth still needs to be cleansed like Isaiah's was as the prophet. No, he's actually just appealing to you. You're redeemed. He sealed you, therefore, he not only sealed you, but one day, he's going to seal you unto the day that you and I receive a new body. Listen, love one another, beloved. 
Speak kind to one another, beloved. And rather than threatening us, he declares our salvation secure. And so is here his motivation to speak gracious words that build up. Amen?